Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. I'm Crystal. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the Book of Jonah and the Book of Micah. And we're really excited to have our friend and colleague, Crystal Pierce, join us today. And she's an expert in archaeology and uh, the Old Testament, certain aspects. And this is, this is a fun section of chapters, Jonah and Micah. And aren't you doing archaeological digs pretty close to where Jonah was raised? Yeah, I, I feel this special connection with Jonah because he's from Gat Hefer, which is not too far from Nazareth in the Galilee area. And I dig there every summer at Tel Shimron. And I also have dug at Jaffa, which Jonah spent some time at as well. So that's fun. This would be great. That's fun. So as we as we jump into this this book, we would have to say that this is one of the more commonly known stories in the church and, and in in the world of at large, because it's such a it's such a funny story with this whale and him running away and preaching. Um, but, Crystal, what would you say we need to understand about Jonah's the, – the man, the time, the place? What's going on so that we can make sense of what we're going to read on these pages before we dive into chapter one? Yeah, and, you know, if you just read the book of Jonah, we, we don't really actually have a lot of information about him. You know, the first verse just talks about his father, Amitai, and we don't really have any other information, but, thank goodness, Jonah is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so we can actually turn to 2 Kings 14 to find out some information about where Jonah's from, what time period he's from, and actually one of his oracles as well. So 2 Kings 14, it mentions Jonah, son of Amitai, uh, the prophet, who was of Gat Hefer. So we already kind of mentioned Gat Hefer. It's a, a fairly small village in the Galilee area, not too far from Nazareth. And if we go to verse 25, it talks about a king who was able to gain more territory for Israel, all the way from Hamat in Syria to the Sea of the Plain, which is the Dead Sea. All right, so if we look at verse 27, we actually can find the name of the king um, that Jonah worked with. So the name of the king is Jeroboam, and this is Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam's reign dates to about 800 to 750 BC. So to kind of put it in context, um, Jonah is after Elijah and Elisha, but before Isaiah. What's, this is a fascinating time period. If you look at a king who rules for that long, you know there's enormous stability going on. If, if a king only rules for a couple of months, he's been executed or exiled, or even just a couple of years, if there's a lot of change going on with the kings and the leaders, there's a lot of chaos. So this is a time of a certain amount of peace and prosperity going on in Israel. And it's interesting because Assyria at this time is dealing with its own issues and is not as much of a threat to Israel as it had been a generation before and as it will be a generation after. And so in some ways, this might be a bit of a golden age for the state of Israel from an economic standpoint. But from a spiritual standpoint, there might be some serious issues going on. There might be a lot of peace and prosperity, but people are eating, drinking, being merry 
and forgetting God. Yeah, and uh, this peace and prosperity is one of the reasons why Jonah is able to kind of freely travel wherever he wants to, to the coast, to Assyria, and you know that's a time of peace and prosperity if he's able to do that safely and freely. So when we get into the book of Micah, we'll see more of what is going on spiritually with the people when they're getting distracted with all this peace. Now, God wants us to have peace. He would love for us to have prosperity. But sometimes when that happens, people choose to say, my hand hath done this, and they forget God. And we'll see more of that with Micah. But in this story of Jonah, it's interesting that we have this prophet being sent to a foreign nation. How often in the Old Testament do we have prophets specifically directed towards a foreign nation for their mission. Um, I can't think of any other really strong examples. They'll they'll often write to other foreign nations, but they aren't often sent to that foreign nation. It seems to be an anomaly. In fact, on that note, if you look at the book of Jonah, this is a book of, of opposites. Everybody's acting differently, almost 180 degrees opposite of the way you would have expected. It's it's plot twist after plot twist, and, and people aren't in character, so to speak, whether it's the sailors, the, sh- the people on the ship, or Jonah the prophet, or the king in Nineveh, or the people in Nineveh, or even a whale. Everybody's acting differently than you would have expected in a, in a traditional story. Yeah, and, and it, the whole story is about repentance and forgiveness, which is about you know, maybe you're going one direction and you need to change and go the opposite direction. And so I love it because Jonah has to do that. The people of Nineveh have to do it. Um, And that's, I think, what the whole story is about, hope, repentance, forgiveness, um, and, you know, returning back to the Lord. Another thing that kind of sets this book of Jonah apart from others of, of the prophetic books in the Old Testament is it's written very differently it's not as if Jonah's sitting down saying, here are my words that God gave to me, and and here's what I did, and here's my story, let me tell it to you. It's not in first person. It's, It's as if it's written by somebody who's watching his story play out. It's a third person telling of his story, and quite frankly, Jonah, Jonah doesn't, it, this story doesn't end on a high note, or it doesn't it doesn't paint him in a really positive light. Um, so this is not an autobiography, it seems. And it seems that it's trying to say something about God's character and nature, and that Jonah and the people of Nineveh, the sailors, the whale, are all playing roles to help identify who God is. So that's helpful. So we'd love to learn about who these prophets are and who the ancient people are, but remember, God preserved his words so we can learn more about him. So as you're looking at this story, you might say, what is God trying to express about himself through these stories where you have people doing things that might be contrary to expectations? Yeah, and that's perfect because, you know, I mentioned that this is a story about repentance and hope, but it's also a story about God's love and that he loves everyone. No matter where you are, where you're from, whether you're part of the house of Israel or a Gentile or are in covenant or not, he loves everyone. And I think that's part of the message too, especially right at the end. I find it stunning that the Israelites would have preserved this story. So just a generation later, the Assyrians are now super powerful, and they come into northern Israel, destroy the capital of Samaria, exile a bunch of people, kill people. It's very barbaric. And yet the Israelites preserve the story 
where it shows God's love and enduring kindness and grace to the Assyrians. And I just wonder, if some foreign nation came in and conquered my city and my people and killed a bunch of us, or had done that to my ancestors, would I want to preserve a story about how God was going to offer grace to this foreign nation that had done all these terrible deeds? So I find it really compelling that this story was preserved over so many generations by Israelites who had suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. Very, so it ties into what you're talking about, forgiveness. It's not just God forgiving people, but even us learning to forgive the past where it doesn't always turn out the way we wish it would. Okay, Crystal, let's jump in. You already covered verse 1. Let's <laughs> let's begin this story of Jonah in verse 2. All right, so when we get to verse 2, he's told to go to Nineveh. So the Lord tells him to go there, cry against it, um, and tell them of their wickedness, give them a warning. And so we see one of the major roles of Old Testament prophets popping up here, and I would say modern prophets today too, to warn the people. Destruction is coming, and destruction in the sense of consequences for sin, punishment for sin that people bring on themselves because of their actions. So he's told to go tell this to Nineveh. Let's talk a little bit about Nineveh and where it is. I know we've already said some things, but it is uh, a city in ancient Assyria um, and modern-day northern Iraq, and this is where Nineveh is located. So, so where his hometown is, is going to be up here in the region of the Galilee. Yeah. About where would... So, where God would, Heifer is... is Nazareth up, is about here. Yeah. So, just about right there is God Heifer. So, this is possibly where this revelation comes in his home. He might have been traveling around at the time, and he's going to end up catching a ship down in... Jaffa. So, here's Jerusalem, roughly. So, Jaffa or Joppa, and we can talk a little bit about that, too. Where Tel Aviv is today. Yeah. So, Tel Aviv grew out of Jaffa, actually, and so it's just south of the major city. And it's a major port town on the Mediterranean seacoast. Here's the problem. He catches a ship in Joppa, and Nineveh in this fertile crescent, it's clear over there. It's the opposite direction. The, the modern-day city of Mosul, Iraq, encompasses the ancient city of, of Nineveh. And so, and we do know a lot about Nineveh at this time. So it was a capital city. It's where palaces were located. There was also a huge temple to Ishtar located there. Um, and we get a lot of information uh, that can, you know, tell us a lot more about the biblical text from the reliefs and the texts that are found there as well. And I'm sure we'll bring that in later. Yeah. So what's the significance at the uh, bottom of verse 3 of getting on a ship in Joppa to head where? To Tarshish. Where, where's Tarshish? So, Tarshish, we don't know exactly where it is, but we have a good idea that it's located in Spain, somewhere along the Mediterranean coast, and what it represented for them was as far west as you could go. Um, yeah, like we would say Timbuktu or something like that, right? Tarshish. It is so far away, and if you look at this, it's the exact opposite direction of where he's supposed to be going. He's supposed to be going to Nineveh, Instead, he um, books passage on a ship to Tarshish. And we know about Tarshish um, from Solomon. Actually, Solomon's uh, people talk about going to Tarshish. And when people went, they were gone for years, you know, three or more years. And as it says here, Jonah, Jonah's going there the exact opposite direction to flee from the presence of the Lord. Good luck. 
which we all sit here and go, that's crazy. <laughs> and he's a prophet. And, you know, he's, he's going to flee or hide and he's going to go to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction. And, but when we really think about it, we all do this sometimes. So <laughs> it's so easy to identify other people's uh, folly and other people's foolishness. And sometimes we, in, in pointing that finger of scorn at them, we don't realize that they're through the quarter of time looking at us saying, oh, really? <laughs> what about you? <laughs> yeah, I think there are many times the Lord's like, I need you to go this way and do this thing. And we say, well, you know, that sounds difficult and hard. And I think I'm going to go this way instead, the opposite way. And, you know, the whole point is you can turn, right, and go back the Lord's way, which, you know, Jonah ends up doing eventually. Um, he has some things that sort of push him to turn, but, and sometimes this happens with us. Sometimes it's the storm that pushes us to turn or things that happen. But I think we, we can't judge Jonah too much for trying to run away from something he doesn't want to do, that he knows that he should do. You know, it's interesting. If you look at your own life, I'm sure that every one of you could think of times in your life where you knew what the Lord wanted you to do and you didn't do it. You did something else. And as long as we don't um, define ourselves by those wrong decisions and, and persevere in that wrong direction, as long as we make that repentant turn, then that can actually become this shaping part of our, of our gospel growth. And I think I think Jonah is going to learn some great lessons from this wrong direction uh, journey that he's about to embark on in this ocean, in this, in the Mediterranean Sea here. And it's interesting because, you know, parts of Jonah and Micah are read on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in, in the Jewish tradition, and the word for repentance, of course, in Hebrew is shuva, which comes from shuv, which means to return, to turn back to try again, to get back on track um, with the Lord. And so it's perfect that everybody kind of views this as, you know, an opportunity to change and become better and get back going the right direction, not towards Tarshish, but the other way. That's such a beautiful concept of repentance. When you, when you find yourself on a wrong road, to truly repent doesn't mean that you say, oh, I feel bad I'm on the wrong road, and then you keep going. You, you actually come back, and that's exactly what's going to happen here. The, the fish is going to help him do that return journey, but he's got to come back to the east to then get back on the right path. He actually takes a very extreme action. He abandons the ship that is the vehicle for him to be pursuing the wrong direction. So it's not that he simply just turns the ship around. He gets off the ship, and in our own lives, how willing are we to abandon the vehicles that are taking us away from God, not just turn the vehicle around, but get out of the vehicle, and to trust that God will save you. It's, it's pretty compelling. So, so these words here, the, the way it's written, it's, a, it's such a beautiful storyteller uh, technique that's being used. Again, these, these um, elements of this story, they're not going to behave in a way that you would have anticipated in this setting. So, we get on the ship, verse 4, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so the ship was like to be broken. So, by the way, I think there's a beautiful object lesson there. Whenever you get on the, the wrong path, 
wickedness never was happiness, or turning against the Lord or going away from the Lord never leads to peace and prosperity long term. It might have some temporary pleasure and enjoyment attached to it, but it's never, it's never going to end well. So, verse 5, then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. He's not acting the way you would expect in a terrible storm. It's He's really trying to run. He's and it's, hiding. It's, he's hiding. It's like he's in a state of denial. He's like, nope, I'm, I'm, he's curled up in a ball on his bed. We can picture him just fast asleep. He's like, I, I don't want to interact with this almost as if he senses that God is in the storm. I love what the shipmaster says, verse 6, O sleeper, <laughs> arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And so they said, everyone to his fellow, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, <laughs> and the lot <laughs> fell upon Jonah, and everybody's looking at him, it's you! <laughs> they have great faith in their lot casting, and ironically, it worked. It's right. Yeah, I mean, so lot casting was used in a couple of different ways in the ancient Near East, so for some it was just to choose someone who had to probably go and do something that people didn't want to do, but sometimes it was used as a form of, of divination, right, to receive information from God. Uh, to receive, to ask God questions and receive information. And of course, under the Mosaic law, this was outlawed, divination was outlawed, but sometimes the Lord authorized it whenever he wanted to. If he needed to use it to get information to someone, he would use it. And of course, it's always up to him. He gave the law, right? So here it actually seems to kind of have worked. He says, yeah, it is Jonah that's the problem on the ship. I just see a couple of interesting ties. Jesus is asleep in a storm. And he stills the storm. Jonah also stills the storm by throwing himself in. He doesn't walk on water. And you also have storms of uh, Nephi and his brothers. His brothers go crazy on the ship with revelry, and God sends a storm. So as you were mentioning before, Tyler, sometimes storms of life should be a reminder that uh, are we on the right path and are we paying attention to what God's asked us to do? And other times, by the way, you can be on the absolute correct path and still find yourself in the middle of storms. So it's not, it's not as if if your life is hard, you have to assume that you're doing the wrong thing. That, that is not the message of the book of Jonah, nor is it the message of the scriptures. It's just that in this particular case, God's going to teach a lesson. There's a, there are consequences for Jonah um, because of this decision that he's made. So you'll notice what he then requests in verse 12. He said unto these men, after they've had a dialogue and they find out who he is, who his God is, where he's from, and what he's supposed to be doing, he says, take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. This idea that because of my decision, you're now experiencing some of the consequences that were intended for me. What you would expect from hardened sailors at this time is, uh, it's you, and before he says anything, throw him overboard. But these sailors are different. It's interesting, and, and this isn't to, to throw all ancient sailors under the bus. Or overboard. Or overboard. Um, they, he told them to throw him over the, out into the sea, and the, the next word in verse 13 is, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. 
they look at him and they say, okay, we've identified the problem and you've told us to throw you out and the storm's going to stop, but we're still going to try to preserve your life. So they row hard, as hard as they can, and their very best efforts, notice it says, but they could not. So if you think you're out on the open ocean, you're not going to make it very far rowing, but it turns out that many ancient seafarers would stay somewhat coastal, close to land. So they probably would, be, would have been inside of land at this point. And the way the currents work in the Mediterranean is they're counterclockwise, so they would have been passing up by Lebanon, modern-day Syria, Turkey, those areas, and frankly, they wouldn't have been probably too far out from Joppa in the first place. But they would have been close enough they could have rowed, so they see that they could actually control this problem with their own means. God has different plans. But they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. And so then you'll notice what happens in verse 14. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased. And so then at that point they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. And we think, whoa, okay, now their story's uh, complete, but you'll notice they had turned to the Lord, pled, hey, we're going to do this, but please don't, don't hold us accountable for this. Yeah, even, even they are speaking to the Lord and, you know, asking for help, asking for forgiveness, you know, don't put this innocent blood on our hands. And at the same time, it's sort of in contrast to Jonah, who's kind of trying to run away and is a prophet of the Lord, and they, they show compassion to him, and we kind of see that through this that it's, it's kind of con contrasted with maybe we have certain ideas about people that we need to change. Which, by the way, Crystal, don't you think it interesting that here, here you had a prophet who went against the calling of the Lord, he's going this totally opposite direction, and if you were, if you were looking at this story from, from the devil's perspective, you would say, ha, I won, <laughs> I won, I, I mission accomplished, and yet isn't it amazing how God can take even a poor use of our agency, a bad decision, a, a poor choice, and turn it into a benefit for helping people. So these, these people on this ship, they're going to walk away from this story having experienced everything with Jonah and having experienced this miracle of the sea then calming once they've thrown him out, having prayed to the Lord of Jonah, they're actually going to have been recipients of some missionary work, <laughs> unintended. And I love how God does that all the time. Even when we mess up, he can still take our mess up and have it help build his kingdom in, in other ways that we would have never anticipated. Yeah, and our, you know, our stories are a lot about us, but our lives and our stories are also a lot about other people that we don't even know that we may have an effect on or have some sort of impact on. So I love this, that we do see these sort of outside secondary characters that play very important roles in the story. Yeah, and so the, it, it ends here with kind of, kind of their conversion. Look at verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. There's some covenantal connection that they're now establishing with God because of this experience. And that was never part of the initial mission call, Jonah, I need you to go out and convert a few sailors and then go to Nineveh, but that's what happens. 
Um, now notice verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So let's provide some ancient context here, because here we live in the post-scientific world, and we want to know what was the exact fish. We want to know the species, and how long did it grow, and how long did it live, and if we read this from an ancient context, we hear a couple of things. First of all, in other ancient Near Eastern stories, when people defied the gods, the gods sometimes would send a creature to correct or punish them. There's a famous story about a man named Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu who killed a, a divine creature that was guarding a forest, and the gods—this is an ancient Babylonian uh, story—the gods sent the bowl of heaven to kill Enkidu. So this fits in that same same worldview that God, who's in the heavens, when he sees somebody who refuses or opposes him, he might allow creatures of his making to correct people or to swallow them up. And when you have this three days and three nights, in the ancient world, people all knew when you heard that phrase, that person is at the threshold of death, right? Once you hit day four, you're clearly dead. Day three, you are right there. There's still the possibility of release, but you are so close the gates of death. And so that's what's going on in, that's one way of understanding this as we read it from the ancient Near Eastern perspective. Yeah, and I, I love that because it's it's meant to show God's power over creation, right, over chaos, control of, you know, animals, mythical or real, and um, that he has control, right? He has control over the storm, over the fish, which in Hebrew is just dug gadol, which means big fish. It can be used for a mammal, like a whale, which is how it's translated in the New Testament, or just a fish here. And so we kind of worry about that, but the whole point is that God is behind the fish, right? This is where the, the fish comes from. Right, this is supposed to be teaching us not about fish, <laughs> but about God. And we get yeah. so interested, like, <laughs> fish. I wanna know we the scientific know. <laughs> definition for that fish. It's like, you're missing the point of the story. God's trying to reveal himself and his work through these interactions. And back to what Crystal had mentioned as an overlay for this entire story is repentance. So we've seen that group of men on the, on the ship make their turn of repentance. You're going to watch in chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly, and he said, and, and he said I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. So now you get his turning, his repenting story. And then ironically, the, the fish itself is going to, in a quote-unquote uh, allegorical kind of way, repent. He's going to <laughs> spit out Jonah. I, he's going to change the direction here. I love how you brought up that, that three days, that's the point of death, because he even says here in verse 2, you know, in the, the belly of hell is how he describes it. And in Hebrew here, this is Sheol, right? This is where the dead go. He feels like he's almost in his tomb at this point. And of course, somebody else talks about Jonah and being in the belly for three days and three nights. So if we turn to Matthew 12, we can read about what Jesus actually says about Jonah. So Matthew 12 um, 39, the Pharisees are speaking to Jesus. They want to see a sign. And he says, you won't have any sign 
but the end of verse 39, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. So this is the Greek form of um, Jonah. Um, and it says in verse 40, if we continue, Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. So shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Mm. So Jonah is a type or a symbol of Christ and what would happen to him. And that idea of Jesus descending into the grave and also through his infinite atoning sacrifice descending into the depths of hell um, being described here um, with those very words back in Jonah chapter 2. So Jonah's prayer ends in verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. We have a story of a man named Nicanor who lives a little bit before the time of Jesus. He's coming, he's a Jew who lives in the Mediterranean basin area, and he's coming to Jerusalem for one of the holy days, and he also gets caught in a big storm, and he vows, Lord, I will donate to the temple if you save me from this massive storm. Now, this is a story that does not show up in scriptures, it shows up in other Jewish literature. Uh, the man survives, Nicanor does, and he is a very wealthy man, and he donates a lot of money to build beautiful brass doors that now separate the court of the women from the court of the priests. And that is the very doors where Jesus is presented when he is a young child. And so we see these vows where people turn to God and say, I will turn my life over to you, and here's how I will prove to you that I have done it. We have one example from the ancient temple where a man gave a bunch of money to build beautiful brass doors that were called the Nicanor Gates, and it was him being saved from uh, shipwreck. Yeah, I love that. I mean, this is Jonah's turn, right? His turning back. And we see that, you know, if we if we look at chapter 2, we see verse 4, he says, I am cast out of thy sight. I have gone the opposite direction, but he says, I will look again towards the holy temple. He says, I, I've been looking at Tarshish. I'm going to turn back around and look at Jerusalem now. In verse 6, he says, I went down to the bottom, but you have brought up my life from corruption. So in the same way that the Savior, right, went, you know, died and then was resurrected and came out of the tomb after three days and three nights, um, Jonah does the same thing. This is his repentance. And this is, what, this is what we all need to do. We're going this way. We need to turn back towards the Lord, towards his temple, and um, do what he asks us to do. And don't you love the fact that we worship a God who doesn't say to Jonah, nope, you, you got it wrong. I'm going to fold my arms across my chest and turn my back on you. You're, it, it's hopeless at this point. Are, are you grateful? that one of the attributes that gets repeated most often in the scriptures to, to describe our God is a God of mercy and long-suffering, loving-kindness, patience. This, these attributes come out in this story. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, now let's, let's look very carefully, what does he say the second time? Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it, the preaching that I bid thee. Well, the second command is the same as the first one. I'm not changing your mission. It's still going to be hard. It's still going to be uncomfortable, but now you're more prepared to go in on that mission because of what you've experienced here in, in this, uh, this sea-going repentance process. Yeah, and Jonah has some time to think about it because between Jaffa and Nineveh is about 550 miles, 
if you travel about 20 miles a day on foot or on hoof, you could say, um, it's going to take him a month, almost a month to get there. So I always think of Jonah thinking about what am I going to say? What am I going to do? What just happened to me? You know, how can I make things better? But it's it's a long period of time for him to get there. And it is tough terrain. <laughs> it is not just walking across a nice flat plain and you got like rest stops every couple miles with your favorite fast food joint or Uber Water. Eats. It's, it's a very tough walk. So it's almost like he's on his journey of repentance <laughs> as he gets to Nineveh. So now we pick it up in verse 3 at, as it describes that journey. So Jonah arose and he went unto Nineveh. And by the way, as, as they're just describing here, notice how easily we read that. Oh, he arose and he went unto Nineveh. It makes it sound so easy, but that's a long, difficult journey and some of you right now are engaged in a long, difficult journey portion of of mortality, and I love the fact that if you press forward based on what you've been inspired to do, then you're, you're on the Lord's errand. You're not doing things your way. You're saying, Lord, thy will, not mine, be done. I think Jonah might have been thinking, many steps along that way, I'd really, really rather not go, but I've experienced my will and I don't want to go back to that. I want to do, I want to walk the Lord's path. I want to do what he wants me to do. And it may not be popular, it may not be thrilling or fun, but it's right. So I'm going to stay on the path. I'm going to stay on, for him, that is the covenant path. So notice, he, uh, now Nineveh, was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Yeah, and what's interesting is at this point in time, Nineveh is only about, we know archaeologically, eight miles in circumference, and he talks about three days, so once again, 20 miles a day. He walks 60 miles around, through, over, under, reaching, I think, every single person in Nineveh he can find to share the message. And then later, of course, Nineveh grows into this enormous, giant, giant city, but he doesn't just, you know, walk through and then he's done. He, you know, has already been walking 550 miles. He walks another 60 miles once he gets there to make sure the message gets to every single person. Yeah, so city gates were like the public squares of the ancient world, and there were many city gates around Nineveh at this point, and so how are you going to get the message out? I mean, if you're in a tight, crowded street, that's hard to do, but if you're at the city gate, you're going to see people, but it's not just one city gate because not everybody uses that gate. So you got to make your way around the city to all the different gates. So he's working really hard, and frankly, this is incredible. What missionary can make his way through a city in three days? I find this absolutely miraculous that at this point, Jonah seems to be with alacrity, moving with purpose, like, I'm going to get this message out. So verse 4 says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we told you that this is a book of kind of unexpected outcomes. The expected outcome would be for people to A, ignore this weirdo in the marketplace or at the city gate and just keep walking, going about your business, or B, stop and make fun of him, or C, do him harm, you know, beat him up and kick him out and say, leave us alone. Like happened to Abinadi or Sam of the Lamanite? Lehi, so many. (laughs) So many prophets. So any one of those three options is kind of what you would expect, but you get D, none of the above. 
Um, My favorite part about the response is in verse 5, it says the people of Nineveh believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. They believed he was a prophet, although I'm sure they, they understood this. But it makes it very clear. They know that he was sent by God to give them this message, and they believed God. And so I, I love that that's the response to this prophet's teachings. You know, this, this begs the question, why would they have responded by uh, putting themselves in sackcloth and repenting? Why would they have believed him? Because if you think about it, usually people don't change, especially dramatic change like we're going to see here in Nineveh, because of things they see or hear. People usually make dramatic change because of truths that sink deep into the heart, deep into the soul, that where they feel something beyond just the, the outer five senses. And so it makes you wonder, what's happening here in this city? Is, is Jonah telling them his story? Is it connecting with their deities in a way where they recognize some truth that maybe they haven't before? We don't know that story. That All you've got is right there, those couple of verses, and it doesn't make sense. They're responding very in a very peculiar fashion here as they actually repent. They're golden contacts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now you pick up the king in verse 6. Yeah, even the king decides to repent, and maybe we can talk a little bit about even the way they decide to repent is a very Israelite way of repenting. It's almost they understand this is the Israelite God, we're listening to him, we want to be saved, we're going to repent in the way that they've shown us or taught us how to repent. And verse 5, fasting is a part of this, putting on a sackcloth, the king does the sackcloth and ashes we want to talk a little bit about the sackcloth and what that means? So it's a very coarse type of material made out of goat hair, and it sort of symbolized being in distress in some way. So it could be distress from mourning, someone's passed away, distress from sin, you're going through a repentance process. It was very much about, I'm going to take off my nice, comfortable, fancy clothing and, you know, be humble, show my humility by putting on this sackcloth and that I'm in distress and I need, I need help, um, and this is kind of what this means. Wearing those clothes was physically distressing. It, it was, was super uncomfortable. So people were physically manifesting and physically feeling what they were dealing with spiritually in their lives of this distress that only God is the one who can endow us with the clothing of salvation, of comfort. <laughs> now, the king doesn't just stop there with himself and the people in his court. Verse 7 says that he proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water. Boy, that's a, that's a nationwide fast. It's not just the people, it's also the animals. Yeah. We're all going to fast. He's taking this very seriously. And then he puts the animals in the sackcloth. Then he puts yeah, the animals in verse 8 in sackcloth. Make everybody and every beast uncomfortable. Except for the goats, because they already yeah. have the goat. So the sackcloth merchants must have been having a great time with this. <laughs> the, the market went up that, that day. <clears throat> yeah, this is one of their sacrifices as part of repentance. You know, just like we, even though we don't sacrifice animals, Right now, we have other types of sacrifices that we do through repentance, and part of that, of course, is the Savior talked about broken heart and contrite spirit, right? It's, it's about what's on the inside, um, and for them also, it was about the outside and what they looked like that, you know, manifested repentance to them. 
Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful concept for us when we fast or when we sacrifice uh, for other people or f to, to try to build up the kingdom of God? It's this opportunity for us to signal to God that we love him more than we love our own comfort and our own full belly or our own pleasures and enjoyments of life. It's, it's a beautiful story here in chapter 3 to watch so many people signaling that they want to keep this, what we would classify as the first great commandment, love the Lord thy God above all else, including things that we love a lot, which is our comfort and our, and our food and drink. And then verse 9, it says, but who can tell if God will turn and repent? You'll notice the Joseph Smith translation in your footnote here says, we will repent and turn unto God, but he will turn away from us his fierce anger. So it turns it from this kind of funny question in, in our KJV text, Joseph gives a clarification here of, no, we're not going to be victims of this circumstance, we're actually going to do these things of our own free will and choice. And then verse 10 also has an additional change, they repented and God turned away the evil that he had said he would bring upon them. And so all of those prophecies of destruction, within 40 days you're going to all be destroyed, well, those were conditional. If you don't repent, well, they met the condition, they repented, so the destruction isn't going to come. And so Jonah, as a successful missionary, goes home with deep joy and happiness to tell his family uh, about no, all the good – wait. No, this is a story of opposites, oh. remember? Well, that's right, we have to keep reading the text. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Now, could you imagine a missionary who has not just maybe blessed one individual or a family, maybe an entire community has all decided to turn to God, and the missionary writes a letter to his mission president, I am so fed up with all these people listening to the restored gospel and choosing to repent. This is just wrong. So it's just such an irony going on here, and it catches our attention. You imagine for the ancient Israelites, they're like, there are double surprises here. First of all, you have this kingdom of foreigners who turn to God. And then you have the prophet who should be super excited, and he's not. And we have some lessons to learn here. It's almost a shock, you know, I think, to Jonah that this actually happened. And it almost makes him sad. But it's interesting because even when Jesus references the repentance of Nineveh, and when he does, he also says, you know, this is a, a rare, spectacular thing that's happened. And so if we if we turn and look at that in Matthew, I think it's really interesting. He he says, so this is right after talking about, you know, Jonas in the belly of the whale and um, comparing it to, to Jesus being in the tomb. He says, you know, the, the people of Nineveh repented and they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And but behold, a greater than Jonas is here. And the people of Nineveh were foreigners, outsiders, not of the house of Israel, not part of the covenant people, the Mosaic covenant. And Jesus says, they repented, and I'm here, and you're my people, you are the covenant people, and you're still not listening to me. And so I think he, he, even he makes this point that, you know, you, we can't just judge people based on certain criteria. Isn't it also fascinating that, that this group in Nineveh, in Assyria, they, they've repented, they've turned to God, and it's that next generation, it's that, that next couple of years where Assyria is going to rise into incredible power and overthrow the kingdom of Israel. 
along with Syria and some other kingdoms along the way and besiege most of the kingdom of Judah. They, they rise in, in their greatest glory and power shortly after this, this experience of, of them repenting and turning to the Lord, and he uses them as an instrument to then carry away captive the people of Israel. The irony is thick in the book of Jonah. <laughs> yeah, I, let's talk a little bit about why Jonah's angry. You know, if you look at verse 2, he kind of talks about this. He says at the end, I know you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and show great kindness. He kind of is hinting at, you are going to stop it anyway, whether they repented or not, whether I went or not. So what was the point of all of this? Mm-hmm. You were going to forgive them anyway. I know you're so merciful. And so he seems to be upset about this. And I think part of that, too, is because they are foreigners, because, you know, they've committed these sins and there seems to be kind of a, they're not part of us. So, you know, how does all of this work? So so Jonah, in his anger and his frustration, he he goes out of the city, up onto this hillside, and he builds himself this booth, this, this shelter, and he's going to sit and watch and and see what's going to happen to the city. It's almost like he's he's just waiting for God to destroy the city. Maybe he was joking. Maybe he's actually going to destroy it, and I want to see the fireworks, right? And then the Lord does this very interesting thing with the gourd while he's sitting up in his booth. Yeah, so it says he prepares a gourd, and this gourd becomes like shade for Jonah. So if you've ever spent any time anywhere out in a desert in full sun, whether it's Israel or anywhere in the Middle East, um, it's hot. And so he needs this shade. And the gourd, it's funny, when we think of a gourd, we think of a pumpkin or, you know, watermelon or something growing on a creeping vine, but there are lots of gourds that grow on climbing vines too. And so for me, I always picture this, even though these gourds aren't in Israel today, but I always picture the loofah gourds. I don't know if you know what they are, the ones that they make the sponges and the loofahs out of. Anyway, these things can grow to be about this big and this wide, and they grow on a a climbing vine. So I always picture Jonah sitting under this big loofah gourd, and it's giving him shade. It's giving him shade and relief. And we see why the Lord is doing this. he's, He's teaching a lesson. He's, he's doing sort of maybe what we would call an object lesson for Jonah. Absolutely, and that was just phase one of the object lesson. Grill the gourd, enjoy the shade, and think, oh, that's nice. Let's, let's watch the rest of the show. And then verse 7 comes along, and God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd, but it withered. So now he kills off the gourd. Yeah, and the word here for worm in, in Hebrew is more related to an aphid, so some kind of insect comes and eats the gourd, and then Jonah wants to die. He wants to die because it is so hot, he's lost his precious gourd. It's almost as if he treats the gourd as this, this thing that's, that saved him, and now that it's gone, he's, he's going to die. Okay, so after the, the gourd is gone, he's upset, and he, he's, he's upset because the gourd is gone, and, and then the Lord says to him um, in verse 9, um, why are you angry? about this gourd being gone. In verse 10, he says, you have pity for the gourd. You have almost love for this gourd, although you didn't plant it, you didn't help it grow, you didn't nourish it or water it or any of these things. And then he makes this this big statement in, in verse 11, should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons 
So a score is 20. So we're talking about 120,000 people. He says, you care more about this gore dying than 120,000 people who repented and are saved from destruction at this point. And also much cattle. And the cattle. Don't forget the cattle. They had the sackcloth too. So They had fasted. And God actually loves all his creation. We focus almost entirely on God saving his children. And you have this instance here where God is also thinking about his created order, and the cattle are kind of representative of all the creeping things on earth that aren't human. Yeah, so this this book that shows you all of these things that you would have never expected, one of them could be God's respect for and love for and care for even the beasts as, as an extension of his, his mercies and his kindness. Oh, and by the way, notice how the book of Jonah ended. I don't know of any other scripture. There might be one, I just don't know where it is if it exists. I don't know of any other scripture where the book ends on a question, with a question mark, where it just leaves it kind of floating out there, hanging in the air for you to to ponder this question that God asked of him at the end um, regarding all of this this, uh, situation. I guess the question for me, and it may be for you as well, is can God love me? today? Can God forgive me? Can God help me turn from from wrongdoing or from poor decisions or poor choices? Or is God going to hold the present-day version of Tyler Griffin hostage to any form of the past version of Tyler Griffin? Or am I allowed, through his tender kindness and his mercies and his long-suffering, to actually allow him, and is he willing to give me a new heart, a new spirit, and to move forward in not just experiencing his goodness for me, but in celebrating when I see his goodness for you or for anybody else. You know, in the in the gospel, we love talking about the, the baptismal covenant of being able to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. I know it's not in the baptismal wording, but I think part of this story is can you also rejoice with those that rejoice instead of feeling threatened by them or feeling feeling somehow diminished because of other people's success or other people's um, rewards and, and blessings that are given to them? And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful question to ponder as we close the book of Jonah. Yeah, Jonah wasn't perfect. God still loved him, wanted him to come back. You know, the sailors weren't perfect. Nineveh wasn't perfect. God loves them all, and all he wants forever and ever of anyone, is to turn back to him in the way that Jonah does, the way the sailors do, the way that Nineveh does, and get back on the path. That is a powerful conclusion because sometimes we get fixated on getting sucked into the well and, again, scientifically, what kind of fish was that? We may miss the larger purpose of this story is to witness that God's enduring love and kindness is available for everybody it is always available, and any one of us, no matter our station in life, can turn to God and find ourselves in peace and prosperity with him. And if you want a, a great chapter to cross-reference with this whole concept that, that we've been talking about, it's Second Nephi chapter 26, where Nephi goes into this, this long description of God's kindness to all and he, he closes with that statement in, in verse 33 of 2 Nephi 26 where he says, um, black, white, bond-free, male, female, 
and all are alike unto God, and he inviteth them all to come unto him. It's just, it's a powerful concept. And, you know, one other thought there is it's not just about can God love me. The other takeaway for me in this book of Jonah is can God love my enemy? And it's a, it's a powerful reminder that maybe I should withhold final judgment. Maybe I shouldn't try to judge people. Maybe it's can, can I leave enough room for God to actually love my enemies as well as loving me? So now the book of Micah. Who is he? What does his name mean? Where is he from? How does he fit into the, to the biblical history? So in verse 1, it starts with the word of the Lord, which sort of signals he's a prophet. Then we have his name Micah. His name is officially, you know, Micah Yahu, which means who is like Jehovah, who is like the Lord. Um, and then we find out that he's a Morisite, which means he's from the site of Morishet in a place we call the Shvelah. And so now we're moving from northern Israel in the kingdom down to southern Israel, the kingdom of Judah. And the Shvelah is an area, it means lowlands, and it's the area between the coastal plain and the Judean hills and the hill country. And of course, this makes it a very important area because it's on all the crossroads from going east to west and some going north to south. And Micah's going to focus a lot on this area in his oracles. We also get some kings here. And instead of just one, we talked about with Jonah, we have Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah here. And so, like you had mentioned with Jonah, when you have a series of kings like this, it means that there isn't peace and prosperity, typically, that there are some problems here. So at this point, Assyria has become very, very powerful. And an Assyrian king named Tiglath-Pileser has come in and taken over, you know, northern Israel and, and many parts of the ancient Near East and turned them into vassals. So they have to pay tribute, massive amounts of, of wealth and materials to this king. After he dies, um, of course, Israel rebels, and then this is just prior to the destruction of Samaria and the northern kingdom. So this is kind of the setting. So Micah would be a contemporary with Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Isaiah is the prophet in Jerusalem, uh, a, a court prophet under Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, these same three, in addition to, to one previous to Jotham. So contemporary with Isaiah, about 100 years before Lehi leaves Jerusalem, uh, 120 years uh, before, just for the, the timeline. Doesn't Isaiah borrow or use words from Micah in his own prophecies? Yeah, several times um, Isaiah does and also Jeremiah does as well. So, In fact, a prophecy from Micah is going to possibly preserve the life of Jeremiah when he's condemned. They say, well, actually Micah said these same things about us, and so maybe Jeremiah might be right. And we'll, we'll get to those verses a little bit later. So Micah is going to begin now prophesying, but he prophesies in a lamentable sort of a way, in this, in this mourning, oh my heavens, I can't believe this is happening to you people, almost like Mormon after the last battle. This, oh ye fair ones, how could you have fallen? Except for Mormon was doing it after they had fallen, and Micah is doing it as a prophecy in this lament. And it's quite remarkable because he's going to get very specific and he's going to mention 
many cities and and what's going to happen to them. Some of these city names, beginning in verse 10 down, we're not even sure where these places are, and it may be that he's modifying the names of locations he knew and was doing wordplay to teach a lesson of, like, the meaning of a name might have a positive, and then he uses a negative meaning to say, this is what's going to happen because you did not follow the Lord. So again, remember, the people, the covenantal context, God promised that he would always be the God of the people. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Mosaic covenant is, this is how you show your love and loyalty to me. And the people have persistently disobeyed God. And God's like, I'm sorry, but you have to be let out of the land because you have broken the covenantal uh, contract that I gave to you. So we'll see this going on here in the last part of, of chapter one. Yeah, Crystal, why don't you walk us through verse 10 through 16, these these cities and what these names mean and their significance. Yeah, so all of these cities are in the area of the Shvelah where Micah is from. And I want to, um, before I jump into those, I want to just talk about this word dragon a few verses before, um, because I know this kind of comes up as a question. What is this dragon? What are the dragons here? And so he talks about dragons. In Hebrew, it's actually jackals and then owls. And so he's talking about the destruction of these cities. And you think about where owls are typically located, in ruins, in abandoned places. And jackals are known as scavengers. And so they, you know, hang out in cemeteries and other places like this. So he's really describing the destruction of these cities, that they will become ruins and He's talking about where he's from, this area of the Shvelah. So in verse 10, he starts with, with Gat, and this is one of the biggest cities, Telosophy today. Um, when he gets to Afra at the end of verse 10, Afra actually means dust. And so he says, Afra, roll thyself in the dust. And um, rolling in the dust or licking the dust, this has to do with, with humility. When we get to verse 11, he mentions Saphir, and Saphir means beauty. And so he says, instead of beauty, right, you will have your shame naked. Your shame will be out there for everyone to see. Instead of this idea of beautiful clothing um, and this artificial maybe beauty, right, naked and exposed for, for what you've done. Za'anan means to come forth. And so there's a play on words here where it says, you will not, right, come forth. Um, Beit Azel uh, means standing place. And so there's this play on words with standing. Verse 12, marot means to be bitter. And so it says they're waiting for the good, but evil will come. So we see this play on words with all of these different cities. When we get to verse 13, we find Lachish. Now, Lachish was the biggest city in the Shvelah and one of the largest cities, in fact, in, in all of Judah, because it was on this crossroads from east to west and north to south. If you controlled Lachish in this area, you could control a lot of the trade and the economy and the politics. And what's interesting about Lachish is we do have archaeologically a lot of evidence of this destruction that Micah is prophesying about. So we have the siege ramp that the Assyrians used. If we go to Nineveh and we look at the palace reliefs and scenes, we see Lachish being, you know, destroyed in the reliefs. And we have massive graves here across the Shvelah during this time period, the time period that Micah is talking about. The sites go from 300 to only 50. So we have a lot of evidence of this destruction here. When we get to verse 14, we actually get to Micah's hometown, Morishat Gat, and he even has to talk about his own town being destroyed. 
Akzib means deception. So of course it's tied this to this idea of of lies. And we'll see with Micah that a lot of the sins and the problems that he sees in both Israel and Judah have to do with corrupt leadership and um, leaders who are are pulling their people in the wrong direction. Verse 15, Merishah means an heir. And there's kind of a play on um, that there won't be an heir, or at least not the heir that you want. And when we get down to verse 16, it says, make thee bald, pull thee, which just means to cut your hair. Again, another sign that something's wrong. Um, usually the only people who shaved their heads were servants, slaves, or priests going through purification. So to see that other people are going to be bald, it's a sign once again of distress and problems and um, usually um, some sort of corrupt political system. Thank you for that description of all of those cities, Crystal. As, as, as we turn into chapter 2, you then see how he's describing the, the destruction of Israel and this lamentable loss, this, the fact that this was needless, and yet you'll notice he ends with this promise of the future gathering. And have you noticed this pattern over and over and over again in the Old Testament, how you get signs of, of consequences being given to the people that are negative, but then God never leaving it at that negative consequence, he always seems to be finding a way to infuse that hope for, a, for either a gathering or some redemption or some future that's bright and glorious. And that's what's great about Micah is he'll give these prophecies or these oracles of sin and destruction, but then he immediately, in between all of these, brings in repentance and faith and restoration and um, looking forward to the future and, and hope. And a lot of his hope, what's great about it is there are so many time periods that we can actually apply his prophecies to. His own, the Savior's, ours, Isaiah's, yeah, Isaiah, yeah it, it's beautiful. So as we as we turn to chapter 2, verse 12, let's get one of these verses of hope. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of uh, Bozrah, as the flocks in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of all the multitude of men. It's not this, yeah, I might get around to it. It's, no, I will surely do this. The gathering is sure. It is, it is going to happen. The Lord God of Israel has made that promise, and it's, it's immutable. It's unbreakable. And I love even though he uses the word remnant, because we think of remnant as a small portion of something. He says it's going to be so many people, they're going to make a great noise, right? There are going to be so many, and they're all going to come into the, the fold, right? And the fold is about bringing the sheep and the animals back into the house, back into the courtyard at night to make sure they're okay, to keep them safe from predators, to, you know, this big group, there's safety in these numbers, to check over them who's sick, who needs extra food, and so everybody will be brought into this, this place. And then we move into chapter 3, it ties back into chapter 2, verse 11. So chapter 2, verse 11, Micah says, If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people, meaning the people are willing to follow anybody who promises the fair things of the world, whether or not they are keeping the commandments or not, we don't care, we're going to have all of our needs being met. 
Romans used to call it bread and circuses. So if somebody comes promising bread and circuses, I'll just feed you and entertain you, they're a prophet. Look at what happens in chapter 3 about what Micah says about these prophets. Verse 5 in particular, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, or to commit error, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace! And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. So these false liars are preparing war against God. And what do we get? Well, back in verse 4, Then they shall cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in all their doings. We hear this in the Book of Mormon, that when people have persistently and consistently and over a very long time period purposely rejected God, he does not immediately turn to them in some cases. We get into the Book of Mormon, the people of King Noah, they purposely turned away from God and listened to lies. They were eating, drinking, being married. Mary, the priests were saying, we get all, we'll take care of all your needs, just follow us and we'll lie to you. Although they didn't tell the people they were lying, but that's what they were doing. And so when the people cried out to God in the Book of Mormon, when they were captured by the Lamanites, it took a couple of tries before God said, okay, I think you're now finally ready to listen to me. So we see these patterns that Mike is talking about back in the 750s, 730s BC, also playing out in the Book of Mormon 500 years later. And Samuel the Lamanite picks up on the same idea, teaching the people, if somebody comes among you telling you what you want to hear, you call him a prophet, but if somebody comes to correct you, then him you're going you're gonna to cast out in stone. It's picking up on this exact same theme. I think in my own life, um, I always like it when people say nice things about me, and then I think about stuff like this, and I think, okay, am I actually really listening to truth, or am I listening to people who, for their own purposes to acquire more power, are trying to flatter me, like Satan would do, to get me to follow them? And we always have to be careful to make sure that we are listening to God's Word through His chosen servants. We have them preserved here, we have living day prophets, and always be careful to make sure we are not loving a lie, but as Article of Faith 13 says, that we seek after what is lovely and of good report and is praiseworthy and has been confirmed by the Spirit to be true and useful and relevant to our lives. Yeah, and Micah talks about telling the difference between a false prophet and, and a true prophet, you know, he says in verses 6 and 7, it's dark for them. Um, the sun doesn't go, doesn't give them light or share anything. The seers, the diviners, they're confounded. They, they're not saying the right things. But then at the beginning of verse 8, he says, but truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. He identifies himself as a true prophet. He's not getting paid to say things. And um, he's going to tell them what the Lord wants them to hear, even if it's not um, uh, what they want to hear. Which, by the way, his message, it's a scathing prophecy. Look at verse, verse 11. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. <clears throat> then he asks this question, yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? That, that idea of, wait, we've got the temple, we've got the present, isn't the Lord among us? It's that eat, drink, and be merry uh, philosophy here. None evil can come upon us. We're good. We're, we, we got this figured out. And then he gives the, the prophecy, 
verse 12, therefore shall Zion for your sake, he's speaking to these leaders, Zion, for your sake, because of what you're doing that's, that's very wrong, it shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. That's the verse that's going to get quoted later on in Jeremiah's story that's going to help defend him in his court case and help, help get him acquitted. But ultimately, the people who heard Lehi and Jeremiah did not turn to the Lord, and you can go today to the city of David on the south end of Jerusalem and see the ruins of the city that was destroyed by the Babylonians because the people failed to listen to the prophets. And it's very sobering to stand there and look at these ruins and realize these things really happened, and then to ask ourselves, am I really listening to the prophets today? It's really easy to look back and say, yeah, Jeremiah was right, but what about today? We have prophets today. Are we choosing to say, I'm going to align myself with God's chosen servants, or are we going to be like the people in the time of Micah and Jeremiah saying, well, I know a little bit better than the prophets, and I think they're wrong at this point. I just hope that we don't become like the stories in the Book of Mormon, where we just become another example of what happens when people choose not to be faithful to God. Yeah, and I think a, a, sort of a lesson from this as well is sometimes we get really comfortable where we're at, right? I'm a member of the church, I go to church, I take the sacrament, things like this, and they thought Jerusalem could not be destroyed. They had the temple. They didn't think the temple could be destroyed. It's the house of God. So I think sometimes we have to think, um, do I feel too comfortable in this safe zone? Do I feel that I'm untouchable, that I could do no wrong? And um, so we kind of have to think about that and kind of dig a little bit deeper and say, what, what am I doing that I could change, that I could make better? That's such a beautiful concept, Crystal. It reminds me of, of Nephi's teaching in 2 Nephi 28, this idea of many shall say, all is well in Zion, yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. It's that idea of sit back, relax, God's going to deliver us, we don't, need, we don't need to repent, we don't need to change anything, we're good. Mm, that's not going to play out well. So now we move to the ultimate hope, and you'll see some beautiful parallels with Isaiah. Now it's interesting, whether Isaiah is quoting Micah, Micah quoting Isaiah, prophets quote one another, or they're both getting their revelation word for word from the same source, we don't know. But listen to these words of hope. Even though people have chosen to walk away from God, they're going to have to suffer the consequences if they don't choose to repent. Eventually, God's covenants will play out, and here's what it'll do. But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his, his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the rest of his prophecies here, they, they paint this picture of there's no more war, you know, swords are being changed into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and all of this idea of let's be done with all of that struggle, kind of this millennial or paradisiacal state that he's describing to give this ultimate hope to say, look, we know how this war is going to ultimately end, and it may be way down the road, but we know who's going to win and it's not in question. The Lord 
God of Israel in this in this uh, battle isn't going to going to end up neutral or on the losing side. Yeah, and I, I love that there are so many multiple fulfillments here. It's not just about hope that the temple will be rebuilt. You could talk about coming back from exile and the second temple, but also um, verse two: many nations shall come. This reminds me of us and our temples and all the the nations that come to our temples. When it talks about in verse two, he will teach people there. I think of the Savior, of Jesus being in the temple, teaching people from a very young age. Um, when we get to verse three and he talks about the judge, I think of the second coming and him coming back and, and judgment. And then when he talks about the swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, this idea of objects used for war and death are going to be turned into objects used for agriculture and life and food. That's peace. And that reminds me of the millennium. So we have so many. It's not just about immediate hope. It's about, you know, near future hope, far future hope, millennial hope. Uh, so when we get to the end of chapter four, um, we see a comparison of the, the gathering, the gathering of Israel with um, the gathering of sheaves on the floor. And so this is a reference to a threshing floor, which was a big, wide open, flat area that every village had where they would bring their wheat and it would be threshed and the edible grain would be separated from the straw that was inedible. And he talks about this, that this gathering will be like these enormous mountains of, of grain and wheat that are gathered together. And in verse 13, he mentions this, you know, horn of iron, hoofs of brass. And this is because sometimes the threshing was done by just beating it, but other times they used animals with metal uh, shoes, and other times the animals pulled a sled behind them that might have had metal or some sort of stone on it. And it's this idea that everyone will be gathered. The threshing floor in the village was many times a place of gathering. People would all come together because it was this wide open public place. And sometimes judgment and law was done there. People were taught. And so it's this great idea of everyone will come and be gathered together. You know, this this chapter 5 brings us clearly into Matthew chapter 2 when King Herod is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and the, the Magi, the wise men, arrive from the east and they ask, where is he that is born King of the Jews? And Herod apparently hasn't been studying his scriptures, so verse 4 says, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Where's the Messiah going to be born? What do the scriptures say? And so then they say in verse 5, they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. You could make a note there, this is Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." So that story clear down the road is, is going to be hearkening back here to chapter 5, verse 2. And I love how they want to make it very clear which Bethlehem they're talking about, and that's why we have this Ephrata, because this is the southern Bethlehem, the Bethlehem of Judah, not the Bethlehem in the north, and that has to be, that's very important because there's somebody else who comes from Bethlehem, and that's David, and so it's part of this Davidic, monarchic line that they're, they're tying this to. And for Matthew, that's a big deal because he, he's <laughs> constantly showing how Jesus is the son of David, the descendant of, of David, or the rightful heir to the Davidic throne to fulfill all of those 
prophecies of the coming Messiah fulfilling that uh, throne of David. So we've had all of this hope that, you know, the temple would be rebuilt and there'll be peace and prosperity. And now we hear that there will be a ruler who comes and we find out what he's going to do. And in verse three, it talks about returning the remnant, the remnant of the children of Israel. Verse five, it talks about peace, right? Saving them from their enemies, from the Assyrians, from the land of Nimrod, which is a reference to Mesopotamia. When we get down to verse eight, the word, um, you know, this is about the gathering of Israel. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, which again, kind of, I think, reminds us of our time. Yeah. And adding one more word back in verse six, he shall deliver us from the Assyrians. And, and we don't have Assyrians who have conquered us today, but there are plenty of object lessons associated with the Assyrians for us today. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful chapter of, of hope coming to us through this little babe who is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, the, the least of all of the, the – the least likely place. And then, to make it even more, he's going to grow up in Nazareth, which is – It's the backwater, the backwater of Galilee. <laughs> it's the backwater of Galilee, and Galilee is the backwater of ancient Judea, and Judea is the backwater of the ancient <laughs> Roman Empire. So when Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Yeah. It turns out, uh, yes, yeah. Jesus can. So we've already mentioned um, verse 8, and so verses 8 through 15, actually, Jesus teaches the Nephites in, in 3 Nephi chapter 21, and it's sort of this message about this is what's going to happen in the future. And of course, for the Nephites, trying to tell them everything you're doing right now, putting together this book, um, will be helpful for the Gentiles in the future and for the gathering of Israel. And he's giving them a lot of hope. So we have hope here and hope when he's sharing that as well. So we move to chapter 6. We have a court case. God is going to court and taking the Israelites, and he's declaring all that he's done, that he is innocent, or he has fulfilled all of his obligations that we've heard about from the Abrahamic covenant going forward. And then he asks the questions about, have the people been loyal to me? Have they kept the covenant? And so all these questions, these rhetorical questions, are essentially uh, answered, no. God has been completely loyal and faithful, and the people haven't. So it's this lawsuit. Who ultimately is going to be charged with wrongdoing? Is it God, or is it the people who have rejected the waters of Shiloh that flow so sweetly? Isn't that fun how the Lord puts you in a very interesting position as the reader here in chapter 6. He lets you sit in the seat of judgment, basically, and he's going to put on this court case, and he's going to show some evidence, and he's going to make some arguments, and you get to be the judge and the jury. So, so he's going to ask you questions. Obviously, he's asking Israel these questions through Micah, but we as Latter-day readers can obviously apply that to us as well in our time today. I love these questions where at the bottom of verse 2, he says, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Okay, so we're going to enter this pleading. Verse 3, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Bring forth your evidence. Where have I done these things? Verse 4, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, for ye, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. 
He, he's showing all of it. I have done the right thing at every step. That's it. He's putting the evidence in front of the courtroom. And he presents his side of the case. I have kept up my side of the covenant, my side of the contract. He gives his evidence, right? Several pieces of evidence where he helped them escape. He gave them people to lead them. He helped them um, deal with people like Balaam and, and, and Balak. He helped them cross the Jordan River. That's what this last one is about. And now it's the defendant's turn to defend themselves. And this is not really a good defense that <laughs> Israel comes up with here. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath shewed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? So, the Israelites had this very complex sacrificial system, and God asked them to perform sacrifices. But it makes it really clear here, no amount of these rituals will save you. Ultimately, it's the loyalty to God because you have loved God and loved your neighbor. So we ask ourselves today, is it enough for me to be active in the church? Is it enough for me to be a 100% home teacher? I know we don't use those phrases anymore. Those are all good things. The question is, is that ultimately what this is all about? Am I choosing justice, justice and mercy and loving God and my neighbor in all instances, or am I just performing outward acts that make me and others think that I'm saved? So we're not asking anybody to stop going to church, but we are asking all of ourselves, is that all that God requires? And this lawsuit puts a question quite poignantly to all of us. Is it just the outward acts, or is my heart truly turned to things that are true, just, merciful, and of God? Such a, a powerful reminder of, is it the act of going to church that's saving me, or is it Christ who's going to save me? And because he's going to save me, part of the way of helping to shape me is giving me these commandments to go to church, to read my scriptures, to pray, to go to the temple, and to, to do justly to people around me. None of those acts is going to save me. It's the Savior who is going to save me. But how does he change us? How does, how does he manifest his grace? If we appropriately go through all of those actions for the right reasons, not just going through the motions. It's a powerful reminder for us from Micah. Yeah, and I think it, it makes us step back and think about, am I just going through the motions, or am I doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God? So we know when, when you know, the Savior came and he instituted the gospel, it was about, you know, in what's inherent, what's inside, not just about the outward actions, that's important too, but it was about the purpose, the meaning, what were these actions pointing to? And this is what this is what he's he's trying to say here. And if you look at this, these are the two great commandments are sort of hidden in here, right? Love others, love God, love yourself. Um help others, have mercy, walk with God. He cares about obedience and taking care of each other. That's kind of what this comes down to. Sacrifice is important, but of course, we already mentioned this, the new sacrifice is very much internal, right? It's very much internal. And um, I love that even though we like to look at the law of Moses as very much about ritual and action, they already knew that it was deeper than that. They, they understood that it was more than that. Yeah. 
which, by the way, as you get into the second part of chapter 6, he's going he's gonna to lay some things out pretty clearly, and to me it's this, this idea of I really ultimately have a choice to make. I'm either going to do my will or I'm going to seek to do God's will, and you get this example of people doing what's in it for them. What, what am I going to benefit from? And so some of these, these practices here in verse 11 and 12, uh, shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? So back then if you're going to buy food or, or grain or, or barter or exchange for anything that you want to buy, if it's sold by weight, then they would have these balances, these scales set up, and they've, they've figured out ways to rig these balances to be wicked balances with deceitful weights so that they can rip you off. You're not getting as much as you actually paid for. In, in ancient Babylon, they had a weight that was shaped like a sleeping duck because a sleeping duck is one of the most uh, innocuous, non-threatening things out there, and it was to remind the merchants and the buyers that this transaction should not be fraught with conflict. It should be like a sleeping duck that doesn't threaten anybody. <laughs> Verse 12, for the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So what happens because of this? Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. And then this, this hauntingly powerful prophecy, verse 14, thou shalt eat but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee, and thou shalt take hold but shall not deliver, and that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. It's that idea of if you do your will instead of God's will, ultimately it's going to be like eating or if you want to use the Isaiah analogy of dreaming in a night vision of eating or drinking a hungry or a thirsty man and then waking up and saying, I'm still famished, I'm still thirsty. It, you can go through the motions of all of these things, whether they be even in a spiritual context, making sacrifices and, and doing these rituals that were uh, prescribed by the law of Moses, but if you're just going through the motions to be seen of people, or to gain the rewards of the earth, or doing your own will, it's going to be like eating a meal, but not ever filling full, not ever getting the nutrients from the meal. Yeah, and sometimes this is called a futility punishment. You will keep trying to do things. You'll try to eat. You'll never be filled. You'll try to sow in, in verse 15, but not reap. And I feel like this is sometimes what sin does to us. It holds us back from being successful. It holds us back from you know, getting to the point where we want to be, to, to growing and to developing, and it becomes uh, futile to, to keep doing things without the proper, um, the proper reasoning, the proper purpose. So eventually we have to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Yeah, which is what we talked about with Jonah. It's perfect, right? Jonah wanted to go one way, and then he came back, and they can come back too. And chapter 7 opens with yet another object lesson. Have you noticed how much God likes using uh, lessons from things that we are very familiar with? He speaks very plainly uh, according to our language and understanding. Look at verse 1. You can picture this, especially if you try to transport yourself back into this ancient context. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits as the grape gleanings of the vintage, 
There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. I am so hungry, and I come to this this, uh, vineyard, and it's already been gathered, and it's fall, and the summer's passed, the harvest has ended, and my soul is not saved. It really is a lament because of sin, right? This is the sorrow. So with the trial, they were found guilty, and the punishment has come, the consequences of sin, and it's a lament here, sorrow for sin, and all of the the terrible things that are happening, they they can't trust anyone. And we even get to the point in verse verse 5, they can't trust their friends, um, they can't trust their family when we get to verse 6 even, Um, but thank goodness with Micah, there's always hope. No matter what, when you get to the bottom, there's always hope, and you can always come out of that. Yeah, so verses 8 to 13 are the hope, and then he ends 14 to the end of the chapter with this prayer and praise to God. So let's just look look at verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I almost feel like Nephi had been reading these when he says to his own soul, arise, you know, and when he is so worried about his own sin and he's calling upon God to release him and to save him from his own, own misery. So, I just feel like we have these connections with prophets who read prophets, prophets who quote prophets, and we'd be well, we would, we would do well to do the same, to let our words also be quoting the words of prophets because it's the word of God. We have a perfect ending here to chapter 7 with Micah. If we look at verses 18 and 19, he says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. We have this idea of turning. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So not only do we have forgiveness and repentance and mercy and compassion, we tie back into Jonah here, right? Jonah was cast into the sea, you know, because of his turning away from the Lord. But, right, we cast our sins and then we get ourselves out through the atonement, through Jesus Christ, and we can be successful again and have this hope for the future. It calls upon the memory again of the Abrahamic covenant. We have it right here in verse 20. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers in the days of old. You go back to Genesis chapter 15. God made an immutable, eternal, unbreakable covenant to always offer to Abraham and his posterity all these great promises, which comes back to the name of Micah, who is like God, right? Back there in verse 18, you got a wordplay. Who is a God like unto thee? Nobody. There is no one out there except God himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that all of us can trust. And don't you love the fact that he he used that phrase, this God that we're talking about? Look at those last three words of verse 18. He delighteth in mercy. He's not a God who gets great joy out of punishing people and seeing suffering and and delivering justice. He's a God who delights in mercy, who can actually forgive you, who can actually forget all of the the foolish decisions and the poor choices that, that you've made. And I love that that attribute is the way that that Micah chooses to end his his book in the Old Testament. Okay, so as we as we finish this all up and we bring it all together, um, 
we talked about Jonah and how it was about repentance and the compassion of God. And we should remember that even the times when we're in the storm or the belly of the whale, right? Jonah was able to come out of that. The Savior was able to come out of the tomb and we can come out of our whale or our storm as well and seek forgiveness. And with Micah, um, I, Micah's message is also about something very similar in terms of repentance that even though, I mean, for them, the destruction came, the destruction happened. The temple was destroyed. Samaria was destroyed. Judah was destroyed. They still could come back from that. And there was still hope in that. So if you're at a place in your life where you feel you're in the storm or the whale or the destruction's already happened and you're on the other side of it, you can still turn back. You can still turn to the Lord. You can repent and just look for him. Look for the light. Look for, as Micah says, the compassion, the mercy. Look for these and then it can help you pull you out of wherever you're at. Thank you for taking time uh, to study these scriptures, and thank you, Crystal, for joining us today. It's been delightful. We hope that you know that God is in his heavens and he is a God who delights in mercy, and that mercy is extended towards you. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness. Thank you.